My name is Peter Nittler, and I am the college pastor here. So hello to you. Hello to you watching online. And you know, sometimes when we engage with the scriptures, what we need to do is we have to imagine uh, the world through a different lens. The scriptures are not usually our lens. We have to imagine the world through a different lens, put on a different um, prescription of glasses. And so there's a, there's a group of people in this room right now who are going to be able to see and experience the scriptures more easily today because the lens will match theirs a little more clearly. And uh, the people I'm talking about are those of us who are fans of the San Antonio Spurs from the, uh, from the 21st century. How many of those people are in the room? <laughs> How many know who the San Antonio Spurs are? Yeah. All right, so we got some work to do. So it's, we're going to have to use our imagination. So imagine with me that you are a seven-year-old, and it is 1997, and it's in the summer, and your team, the San Antonio Spurs, has just had the worst season that it's ever had in the history of its life. And you're feeling great about that. Why? Well, because in the NBA, let's see if we can see this. Um, in the NBA, that's tough to see. But there are, there are a couple of things. This is NBA 101. You either want to be the best that there was, the best there ever was, because that's awesome. That's where you win championships. Or you want to be the worst. Because that's when, if you're the worst, you have a chance to get the, uh, the top pick in the next year draft, which gives you hope. Where you do not want to be, is in the wilderness, okay? And this is where your beloved Spurs have been your entire life. They've been too competent. Uh, they've been not competent enough to win championships, but too competent to have any hope, okay? <clears throat> Until this year. The Spurs lost so many times that they actually won. They won the chance to draft Timothy Theodore Duncan, from Wake Forest, a.k.a. Tim Duncan, a.k.a. The Big Fundamental. That would have killed in an NBA room, I gotta tell you. <laughs> okay. Um, so this is uh, easily a top five moment of your childhood. Why? Because Tim Duncan rescued your team from the bondage of NBA mediocrity and brought them to the promised land of NBA dominance. For two decades, 19 years, two decades, your whole childhood... You got to watch Tim Duncan turn your team into a win factory. Every single year, every single year for the next two, the, two decades, you had, your team had over 50 wins. You won five championships in that time. You got to watch the best, oh, excuse me. Um, you got to watch the, i go back on this thing. Oh, no. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, Okay, you never lie, you won five championships, you're in the promised land, and, uh, and then one day, you got to watch the best power forward of all time on your team, two decades, anyway, okay. One day, you're watching the last game of his career, and, you know, it, it's been 20 years. You have a child now. You're watching this game with, you're, you're almost 30, you're watching this game with your child in your arms, and you're weeping, because Tim Duncan's career meant so much to you, and, uh, she, you know, your, your daughter, she's got a Tim Duncan onesie on. You have your battered Tim Duncan jersey you had when you were 14. And as the game winds to a close, you say to her with tears, there's never going to be another Tim Duncan. There's never going to be another Tim Duncan. And you're right. When he leaves the team, the win factory shuts down. And you're back to the mediocre wasteland. No prospects, no hope, no way forward. Because uh, you know the only real way forward is to get another Tim Duncan. That's the only way back to the top for you. 
but there's never going to be another Tim Duncan. So I want you to imagine that feeling. Bottle that up for a second, and then feel what happens this summer for the San Antonio Spurs. As you watched your Spurs play this year, they lost a lot of games again. The second worst season they've ever had in their history. And they lost so many games that they actually won the prize of all prizes. This is Victor Wembanyama. He is a 19-year-old. He's seven foot five. He's from France, and he has been called the greatest prospect in the history of team sports. And the history of team sports, I will let you know, includes Tim Duncan. It happened again. And you watch, your team got to draft Victor Wembanyama, and you watch the draft with your daughter in hand, and you're in tears again, because the only thing better than living through the Tim Duncan era yourself is to watch your daughter live through the Wemby era. Who is the cure for basketball sadness and the answer to your basketball hopes? Victor Wembanyama is the true and better Tim Duncan. Now, the caveat, of course, is that we have no idea how this will play out. But I want you to isolate that feeling that right, that's right there. The only thing that can save us is another Tim Duncan. There are no more Tim Duncans. And just look what we got, the true and better Tim Duncan. We can, if we can capture that feeling, we're ready to turn to the text. Okay? So we're going to read from Deuteronomy. Uh, it's the last few verses of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is... Uh, the last book in the Torah, it's Israel's foundational text, and these are the last words. Um, and I think you're going to see where we're going with this. Okay, so Moses, the character of Moses, who has led the people of God through, uh, through wilderness, through exile, all that stuff, and they're at the precipice of the promised land, and Moses is dying. And the people are sitting, watching him, and they're holding their newborns in their arms, and they're crying. Why? They say this, and there has not arisen a prophet since Israel or since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that Yahweh sent him to do in all the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. There's never been anyone like Moses. Can you hear the sadness that's there? Haven't had anyone since. That's done what Moses did. Can you hear the implicit hope, even if it's dim? The hope is, if there could be a way for us to have life again, for us to experience blessing again, we're going to have to have a new Moses. And hopefully, we might even have a true and better Moses. And we are in a series, of course, called True and Better. And it's a series that is exploring Jesus' own words that all of the scriptures... All of the Old Testament actually lead to him, and they're fulfilled in him and by him and through him. And this morning, we are looking at how Jesus is the true and better Moses, and it is awesome. Okay, you have come on a good Sunday for this. And here's the thing about Jesus and Moses, is that seeing how Jesus is the new Moses, it's a bit like doing a puzzle. And because as we'll see, there's going to be all these little aspects of, of Moses' character that individually are kind of like puzzle pieces. But when we put them together and we arrange them and we get them in the right spot, what's going to be interesting is that they're going to look an awful lot like Jesus. And here's the other thing. Okay? Moses is like a theological Heathrow airport. 
This could be, uh, the, the puzzle of, of Jesus and Moses could be a thousand pieces. There are so many different and intricate connections between Moses and between Jesus that it could be like a thousand piece puzzle. It could take all weekend for us to, um, to talk about and to explore together. But we don't have all weekend, and so we're just going to narrow it down to some of the essentials. But I promise we're still going to get the picture. And, and so here's the plan, okay? In our house, the Nittler boys love puzzles right now. Mason, our oldest, loves to do puzzles. Tate, our youngest, loves to eat them and, uh, and to go hide the puzzle pieces around. And so whenever we are set, setting out to do a puzzle in our house, what we have to do first is make sure we have all the pieces. So that's what we're going to be doing. We are going to be telling the story of Moses, and we're going to be seeing if we have all the pieces of the Jesus puzzle. And uh, we're going to be picking them up and seeing what they are and their distinctives, and then hopefully we'll put them together in the end. And hopefully by the end, I think we're going to have an appreciation for Moses. We're going to be bowled over by Jesus, and I think we're going to have some clarity about how we fit into this story, too. So, a quick little Star Wars prologue sort of scrambling, uh, or I mean scrolling words, just to get us into the story. Okay, so, in the beginning, God created the world. And he made human beings, he made humanity in his image, meaning to be like him in the world, to be creative and to, and to bring blessing and goodness and righteousness and justice to every corner of the world, to take the raw materials of the world that God just created and to cultivate it, to do good with it, and to experience blessing. That heart will be God's blessing. And to spread that blessing to every square inch of creation. It was a really good plan. It was a great plan, actually, until a little snake came and slithered into this story and wrapped itself around the hearts of these human beings and convinced them that God actually couldn't be trusted to bring life. God couldn't be trusted to bring blessing, that the way to life was actually to listen to what seemed good to them, listen to their own hearts to see what was good and right. And eating a piece of fruit, which is what they did, might not seem that bad, but when you take that same impulse and that same, that same idea of trusting your own sense of what is right and what is life, and you scale that up, and you bring all the human beings together, and they're all doing that kind of thing, what you end up getting is human history. Okay? You get violence, and you get relational turmoil, and you get chaos, and you get evil, and you get oppression. And so God saw that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The plan was not working. The, the human beings were not bringing blessing to the world. But instead of scrapping the project, God chooses one man, Abraham, and one nation, Israel. And he makes promises to them that he will bless them and give them, the, uh, give them the, some, some choice land. And why does he do this? Is it because somehow God's, um, is it because he loves Israel more than everyone else? No, it's because somehow God is going to use this family to get the plan back on track. He's going to use this family to restore all humanity and then to hopefully restore the whole world. Somehow life will return to all people. So that's the prologue. We're going to fast forward through the rest of the book of Genesis. And this family of Israel finds itself in Egypt and it's not going well. You see, Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, he has a snake wrapped around his heart so tightly that what he thinks is good, because he's threatened by Israel, what he thinks is good is to kill all the babies that are born from Israel. And what he thinks is good is to enslave Israel so that they can't multiply, so that they get shut down, so that they get exterminated. And the, and the people of God in slavery, they, they cry out to God. Rescue us, save us, and God hears them. 
and he makes a plan. And step one is to call our hero, Moses, to call him to himself. And so he shows up to Moses in the form of a bush that was on fire. But it wasn't actually, it wasn't burning up. And, um, and throughout the scriptures, where we see fire is where we see the presence of God. So the presence of God that was supposed to be in all of Eden was now there present with Moses. And God speaks to him from the bush, and he tells him the plan. He's like, I'm going to redeem Israel. That's the wrong spot. My apologies. I'm going to redeem Israel. And and that word redeem means something very specific. I'm going to take Israel. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to set them free from the bondage of slavery that they're in in Egypt. To redeem is to set free from the bondage of slavery. So he's telling Moses, I've heard the cries of my people, and I'm going to set them free, and I'm going to use you to do it. So Moses goes, and he tells Pharaoh, the king who's oppressing the people, he said, listen, God says it's time for us to go. We're saying bye-bye to you. And Pharaoh said, I don't think so. You're staying here with me, and I'm going to oppress you. And then he and God, Pharaoh and God, have a gnarly chess match. And the checkmate comes in what is called the night of Passover. It was a deadly judgment against the evil of Egypt. Okay, but Moses tells the people, there's a way out. Okay, if you smear uh, this lamb's blood on your doorframe, your house will be passed over and you will have life, not death. And that night, okay, the people of Israel smear the, the lamb blood and they have their bags packed. And they're ready to just book it out of there and they go. They follow God's guidance through the desert toward freedom right to the edge of the water. And they panic, and you would too, because what they have, what they're experiencing right now is, is impassable waters on one side and Pharaoh's army coming to chase them on the other side. It doesn't look good from either direction. And so they turn to Moses, and they're like, what's going on, man? You let us out here to die? You let us out of Egypt to die? It would have been better to live in Egypt than to just die right here. And Moses looks at them and says, do not be afraid. Fear not. We will see the salvation of the Lord today. And so Moses raises his hands with the staff, and like a conduit of God's power, the waters that were so impassable, they start to move. The wind starts to pick up, and they start to part. And there's like a tunnel that forms through the waters that Israel can then pass through on dry land toward freedom. A release from the bondage, a release from the chains towards freedom and towards life through the work of Moses. And so this is the first puzzle piece in our puzzle. It's redemption. It's freedom from slavery. This is what, this is what Moses does. But the very next story, and it's important that it's the very next story, right after this incredible deliverance, Moses is leading the people through the wilderness. And they've been there um, three days in the wilderness without any water, which would be tough. But, um, and they finally see some water which ends up being not safe to drink. It's called bitter water. And it's at a place called Mara, which means bitter. And the people started to grumble against Moses. They start to get upset. And they're saying, what shall we drink, Moses? What's going on here? It's the same thing. We could have stayed in Egypt and we would have had plenty to eat. We would have had plenty to drink. Sure, we would have been slaves, but we would have been safe. We would have been free to eat and to drink and to live. And do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear... What what they're communicating, there's this implicit trust that, God, you've let us out here, and we can't trust you to give us life. We can't trust you to be good to us. 
Egypt was bad, but we knew that there was some form of life there that we were comfortable with. They're saying Egypt is the one that will give us life. God, don't trust that you can. And so what we see in this story is that the snake is back. And so Moses cries out to the Lord, and God tells him a very strange thing. He tells him, take this log and just throw it into the water, and the water will become sweet and safe to drink. And Moses does it. And the people can drink, and and they're saved, they have life. Which is the second piece of the puzzle. Moses is the faithful representative. See, just like Israel was chosen to be a representative to restore life to the world, now that we see Israel is infected with the same snake, so Moses is accepted as a representative who can restore life to Israel, who is supposed to restore life to the world. It is his listening to God, it is his obeying God and doing what God says that actually takes a situation that looked like death to Israel and is able to usher it into a different spot and it turns into life. The bitter waters become waters of life through Moses' faithful representation. And this cycle, by the way, of high points, okay, the high point of Jesus bringing, I mean, of, uh, of, of Moses and God bringing the people through, through the waters in a magnificent rescue mission followed immediately by a human failure to trust god that cycle is going to repeat over and over and over and over and over there's going to be a magnificent rescue there's going to be magnificent god faithfulness and then there's going to be horrible human failure that's going to be the story that's going to happen over and over and over again for the rest of this story and we're going to look at one more example and it's a big one so the people leave mara they leave this these waters and they make it to mount sinai And God shows up there too, once again in fire, in the form of a smoking, fiery Mount Sinai. And let me tell you something about you right now, that unless you are one of the firefighters in our congregation right now, 100 times out of 100, if you were to come across a a rumbling, smoky fire mountain with a wall of fire, you would not walk towards that wall. Every single time you'd walk away from that wall. It would be the only logical thing to do. But Moses knows that that's where God is. The fire is where God's presence is. And yeah, it looks like death to walk through a wall of fire. But I know that's where life is. And so Moses goes up the mountain and he steps into life. And he goes alone because he's the faithful one representative. And it's on this smoky fire mountain where God God gives Moses the law. It's what we call the Ten Commandments. And it's a way of, of God saying to his people, look, here's the deal. I made promises to you. I would be your God. You would be my people. But I need you to listen to me. I need you to learn to, to obey, to listen to what I'm saying, and to trust that I'm going to give you life. And I need you to reflect my life into the world. You living like this, like these Ten Commandments, this is how the world's going to see what kind of God I am through the way that you live and represent me. It's things like no other gods before me, don't make yourself any gods, no murder, no adultery, things like that. And if you can commit to this, I will be your God. And so Moses takes all this information, he takes this stuff, and he goes down the fire mountain, and he goes to tell the people, and he gives them a sermon from the mountain and tells them what God has said. And the best way to think about this is a marriage, saying these, these are God's vows to you, and he's what, he's what he's hoping is going to be your vows to him. Do you both say, I do? You both say yes. And Israel, pretty good. They say yes. Pretty exciting. 
And so Moses kind of, I now pronounce you God and people. And this is then the third puzzle piece. Moses brought them, was the, was the mouthpiece of the law of life. Of the law, the way of being that was going to bring life to the people. So Moses goes back up to the fire mountain to report the news. And he puts the law onto these stones. Kind of like how couples put their uh, wedding vows on, like they frame them and put them over their bed or something like that. It's like, we're going to really make this official. And, uh, and if you try reading through this section of the scriptures, when Moses goes back up, there's laws and it's tabernacle city and it's high priest stuff. And it's going to feel like, if you're going to read through, it's going to feel like you've been reading for 40 days and for 40 nights. Because it is, it is it's the most dreadfully boring thing that you could probably ever uh, read. But it's really important. And Moses, you were not reading for 40 days and 40 nights. But Moses was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, which is plenty of time for the snake to slither its way back into the hearts of the people. So here we go again, right? A high point. God and the people have been married. This is great news, followed just immediately by a devastating human failure. The very next story. The Israelites are like, man, it's been up there for a while. 40 days. We don't really know what happened to him. So the snake kind of creeps in, wraps itself around their hearts, and says, hey, sure has been a long time. You can't trust God. Maybe Moses is gone. Maybe your leader's gone. Can you really trust God to give you life and to do anything with you in the wilderness here? So go make a God for yourselves. And so Aaron, um, Moses' brother, they take off all their gold and they melt it down and they make a golden calf and they kneel before it and they feast in front of it and they claim this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And they worship it. And it's like, man, human beings, what did you just commit to? It's like cheating on your spouse on the honeymoon. And God is angry, like angry, angry. He's like a spurned spouse, and he's ready to give up. And because God is the author of life, if he gives up on you, you don't have life. (laughs) You die. But Moses stands in the middle. He stands in between evil Israel and holy and a holy God. And he says, no, no, God, that is not who you are. You are not the God who gives up on these people. You made promises to these people. Don't give up on them. Forgive them. <laughs> if you're going to have a relationship, you're going to have to forgive them. So forgive them. But if you need to bring justice, you are a God who gives justice. If you need to bring justice, put it all on me. Wipe me out of your book. Put it all on my shoulders. I will take the death if you give them life. And God is moved. And he spares Moses. And instead of giving up on Israel, he chooses to forgive them. And that's the fourth puzzle piece. The faithful one willing to die to give the guilty life. And if we fast forward again, through the rest of Exodus, past Leviticus, past Numbers, and into the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we'd find Moses, and he's looking over the Jordan River, looking into the promised land that God had promised to his people, and he's giving Israel sort of one last pep talk. And in that pep talk, he's got bad news for us puzzle doers. We're missing a puzzle piece. We're missing a puzzle piece. And he's telling the people of God, when you go into the promised land, listen, listen to God. (laughs) Choose life. But he also tells them, you're not going to do it. I know you're not going to do it. You can do it. You have everything you need to know. 
but you're not going to do it because your hearts are broken. The only chance you have to choose life and to become the people you're supposed to become is you need God to circumcise your hearts. You need God to circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your children also so that they will love God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind. That's the circumcised one. You need God to circumcise your hearts. And now that's a strange and that's kind of a gross metaphor. Uh, But what does it mean? What is he saying? Well, we've talked a lot about the heart this morning. The heart has come up over and over and over again. What is the heart? What do we mean when we're talking about the heart? We, we We tend to think in this room, we tend to think that the heart is for feeling and the head is for thinking. But in the Hebrew imagination, in the scriptures, um, the heart is, is the whole kit and caboodle. The heart is the whole thing. It's where we think, it's where we feel, and it's sort of the engine of our desires. And so the constant base note of these stories that we've encountered this morning is that the human heart, its thoughts and its feelings and its desires, it has the snake wrapped around it. It's in bondage to darkness and to evil. It's not just that we do the wrong thing. The stories are not, look how Israel just kept doing the wrong thing. The stories are about Israel's desires, the things that they thought were good. Even those are in bondage to evil. And so they could not produce the life that God was hoping for them. And so our hearts tell us that, our hearts sometimes tell us that something is good and logical to do, and what this, the, the argument is that even that is broken, even that is sick, and even that is in bondage. And so Moses has lived through this enough. And so in his pep talk, he knows they don't need any more laws. They don't need any more miracles. They don't need any more proof that God is good for them. What they need, the only thing that will let them choose life is if they're given new hearts, set free from the bondage. And the tragedy of Moses' life is that he was the best that they ever had. He was their redeemer. He was their teacher. He was their faithful representative. He was their intercessor. Over and over, he turned situations of death and he brought them into life. But it wasn't enough and it would never be enough. Sure, he set them free from Egypt, but he could not set them free from evil. There's a puzzle piece we just do not have in these stories. And so throughout Israel's history, as they awaited a true and better Moses, the prophets, um, they longed for this. They longed for these new hearts, and and God started to make promises through them. Look at Jeremiah. So one day, God was saying, one day I will make a new covenant with you. Not like the one I gave to the people in Egypt, the one that they broke. I'll give them a new one. I will put my law within them. I will write it where? On their hearts. I will write my law on their hearts. Ezekiel. And I will give you a what? A new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The the promise. One day, one day God will give us new hearts. He will cut away all that leads to death and he will write his law into us so that our thoughts, our feelings, our desires will be his thoughts, his feelings, his desires, and we will lead to life. It's like, (laughs) this is a little on the nose, but it's like they, this is the Christmas present that they were longing for. And on the first Christmas, they got it. 
And if we were doing the thousand-piece puzzle, we'd talk about uh, how almost from the first breath, Jesus was doing Moses-y things. Jesus was becoming the new Moses almost from day one. You know, but let's put our pieces together. Okay, so the teacher of the law. Okay, Moses gave his sermon from the mountain, starting with Ten Commandments. Jesus gives his sermon on the mount, starting with Ten Beatitudes, pronouncing the blessing of the kingdom on people. And his teaching, it does something different. Say, you heard it said in the law, do not murder. That's still true, but I'm here to tell you there's something underneath that. It's not just about not killing people. It's, it's not just about what you do. It's about your hearts. The act of murdering is downstream from, from something else, from anger, from hatred. So, so don't do that. He's speaking not just to what we do. This isn't just behavior modification, but our, our motivations, our desires, and our intentions. He's speaking about our hearts. He's showing us what it will look like if we could have new hearts. So redemption from freedom, from bondage. What Jesus does, it's like he has this universal key to all of the chains that the snake has produced in our world. And he's just walking around just like unleashing people. And he unlocks the chain. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He raises people from the dead. And it's all warm up for the grand finale. Because then... He list, Jesus listens to the Father and obeys the Father and does what he says even when it looks not good to him, even when it's going to look like death. And he goes to that cross. He lets the snake bind him with one nail in each wrist, one through the feet, and he's the faithful representative. Says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's the faithful representative willing to die to take the judgment and the consequences of all the darkness that we've pumped into the world with our broken hearts so that we could have life instead of death. But that peace is still missing in the story, isn't it? And to be honest, the Moses story trained us actually well enough to know that if this was the whole story, just that Jesus died and forgave us, um, the excitement would have lasted for an afternoon and somehow the snake would have gone, conned us again into trusting our own hearts. Moses did all this stuff. He didn't die, but he did all this stuff. What makes Jesus true and better is that empty tomb they found three days later. What happens when your enemy does its worst thing that it can do to you and you're still standing? Well, you've won at that point. Life beats death. And the power of that snake has been embarrassed. The chains around our hearts have been broken. So sure, Moses led the people out of Egypt. Jesus led the people out of evil. It's the most significant day in human history. And when the earliest Christians were searching for the ways to describe the impact of these events, they said things like this. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a different way of saying he gave us new hearts. He gave us new hearts. My engine was broken. I've been given a new engine and I've been given his engine. The Spirit of God lives in me and my heart is no longer bound by evil but is actually set free for life. And so everyone who belongs to Jesus, who has been covered by his sacrifice on the cross, is not just forgiven. That's good news. Not just 
forgiven, but actually given a new heart to live with from now on that has broken free from the chains of that snake and is able now to listen to God and is able now to live for God and is able to be agents of blessing and love in this world, which is what we were always intended to be. And I think this is where we enter the story. You know, we saw how God responded to human evil. From all people, he chose Israel, and then from Israel, they didn't work out, so he chose Moses, and it was all to sort of restore everything. And um, we're going to see what happens when God responds to Jesus. And it's the exact opposite. Okay? Look at what happens when Jesus dies in the story. After Jesus, he breathes his last breath and then says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split, which seems like a bit of a non sequitur. It's like, okay, Jesus just died. Your interior design concerns can wait a little bit. But it's not a non sequitur. It's the whole point. You see, the curtain, the temple, it was this thin barrier that was separating the darkness and the death of this world from God's powerful and purely good presence. The very presence that Moses met in a smaller form in the, at the burning bush, the very presence that, that Moses walked into in the mountain, the very presence that Jesus walked around with, unleashing into the world with his goodness, the very presence that was present in Eden for all people to enjoy before the snake. You know, it is cool that Moses was one of us and he was able to be in God's presence. You know what's cooler? is for someone to be able to do something that unleashes it for all of us to be able to experience God's presence. And Jesus just tore the curtain. And so that power and that life, it's no longer bound by the temple. It's unleashed into the world. And this is probably not the best illustration. It's not intuitive to talk about Chernobyl when discussing God's blessing But, okay, really the perfect image for understanding what this is like is like the anti-Chernobyl. If Chernobyl did the exact opposite of what Chernobyl did do, what if instead of of doing what it did do, instead of uh, releasing disease and decay and death into the world, what if something else got released into the world and it restored people? It set people free from addiction or healed relationships, it it brought justice to the poor, or brought reconciliation between warring parties. What if it healed cancer? What if it brought hope to the hopeless? What if it brought life and life abundant? And just needed a little crack to be unleashed into the world. And it was available to everyone. I think if Moses could time travel to right now, he would fall on his knees and he would weep. You mean to tell me human beings aren't under the curse of the snake anymore? You mean to tell me that God has put his presence in the hearts of human beings to live with in the world? You all must be producing just tons of blessing, (laughs) tons of life. You're just a, a blessing factory. You're in the promised land, people. And I bet he would tell us the exact same thing the New Testament writers told us, that now that you've been been set free, live like it. Choose life. This is, how, this is how Paul puts it in Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through, but through love serve one another. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You've been set free. Don't go back to the snake. Don't do the stuff we used to do when we were in bondage. 
when the snake had us wrapped tightly. Don't do that stuff anymore. Don't gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the stuff that keeps you from doing what your new heart desires to do. Be people of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It's not automatic. This thing, you get, you get a new heart, it's not automatic that you become these kinds of people, that we become these kinds of people. And it'll take commitment and it'll take repentance and it'll take a lifetime. But if, church, you belong to Jesus, this is true about you. You have been given a new heart. It's not just true about you when you feel good about yourself. It's not just true about you if you haven't lied for a while or haven't cheated for a while. It's true of you right now, however you find yourself. It's true of you even if you felt a bit snaky lately. Okay? Jesus' death still covers you. Jesus' spirit is still in you. Your heart is not in chains anymore. You can walk away from whatever death you're participating in. You can walk away from things that feel like they're binding you because they're not anymore. And sure, not all cases are the same. Sometimes this will take years, it'll take a lifetime. Sometimes a counselor needs to be involved in the process of setting you free from these chains. Absolutely. But the truth remains, you are a redeemed son or daughter of God. And you've been given a new heart, and you are invited to join the current that is flowing from that torn curtain, bringing blessing and life into a world stained by darkness and evil. So as you go today, I challenge you to bring life somewhere. Bring life to an area where where you're still choosing to be cozied up to death, to bring restoration to a relationship that's hurting, to stop giving yourself over to things of the death, to be a person of peace, not a person of anger. You know yourself, you know your situation, you know what's going on in your life. Just pick something. Start somewhere and ask the spirit that's inside you to give you power. We are members of the New Hearts Club. Let's live like it. Let's pray. Father, I think the, main, the, the challenge for, for me has been, like, what if I don't feel like I have a new heart? And I'm so grateful for the reminder in these texts of this grand story that we find ourselves in. And, uh, and I pray that you would, all the times where the, where the snake still feels sticky to us, would you unstick us? For everyone in here who's trying, who's trying to be set free, who's trying to do something um, that participates in life, would you pave a way? Would you be close to us? And for those of you, or for those of us in this room who, who don't know you yet and have not been put under your forgiveness. Father, would you draw them near and give them new hearts like you've done for us. In your name we pray. Amen. What I am deeply grateful for about the Holy Spirit is that just carries things on in our lives and draws us further further in in what he wants to do in our lives god's been doing something with me in 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 our church discernment process that we're in right now and this morning at a prayer gathering um some some he just spoke something to my heart and it was around unity and then this this morning as we started our worship service and Derek Derek mentioned the unity and peter preached about how God gives us this new heart. For me, replacing my heart of division with a heart of unity. Wow. That changes my life. I'm grateful for this morning. Uh, Peter, thanks for opening up the scriptures to us. 
love the challenge that God is going to do in you, whatever it is that you need, uh, that you're facing this week, giving you that new heart, filling you with his Holy Spirit. I trust that he's working in you this morning and that you had ears to hear him. Let me give us just a couple uh, reminders about what's coming up in the life of our church. And they all center around um, our discernment process that we're in. And they actually center around unity. You know that, that phrase, the family that eats together or the family that prays together, stays together. And in our discernment process, as we are wrestling as a church family with how to reconcile our expenses and our giving, how God is moving us in a fresh direction, we, over the summer, want to have more times to eat together and and to be together and just maintain that connection. Um, Right after church, there's donuts in the courtyard. Enjoy eating together. Uh, next week, we're having a lunch. Uh, we're having barbecue. I was talking to Jeff Hodges, who's helping organize this. We're having barbecue. We're having some watermelon. We're having some, some rolls and some baked beans. And so that'll be right after church. Everybody online, you can't have it online. We're not door dashing it to you. Come in. Eat with us. Uh, we'd love to have you with us. And like last, our last lunch, uh, the encouraged donation is $5 for individuals, 20 bucks if you're a family. Um, so you're welcome to join in that way. And then lastly, we're having a forum uh, right after the service at 11.30. So you have a few minutes to grab some donuts, enjoy, and then you're all invited into the fellowship hall where we're going to take our next step of discerning together how God's leading us. And I hope you all can join us. Online people, there's a Zoom link. It's posted on our Instagram and our Facebook. And so you can find that there and join us on Zoom. I love this family. I love being together as we follow Jesus together. So now would you stand? And would you receive this benediction? As we prepare to take our songs and our prayers and the sermon into the week ahead, would you receive the heart of God the Father, God the Son, and of God the Spirit? Go in peace and go in his love.